Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about your body's electromagnetic field, why you probably never learned that ancient Greek and Roman statues used to be brightly colored, and the surprising trick to a winning pep talk. Let's win some curiosity. Physicists have confirmed we do have an electromagnetic field. And here's why. Our atoms, which we're made of, are mostly empty space. If the nucleus of an atom was, say, the size of a marble, the farthest electrons to orbit it would be about a football field away. So with all that empty space, why don't atoms pass right through each other? The answer lies in the electric field that surrounds each atom. The electrons exist as a cloud of quantum probabilities, each on certain energy levels at set distances from the nucleus, with set amounts of electrons allowed on each orbital level at a time. An electron can jump from one energy level or orbital to another. But in order to do this, you need an exchange of energy. So when two objects get close to each other, their electrons begin a coordinated dance. We've talked about it on this podcast before, but this dance of electrons prevents anything from ever actually touching anything else. If someone punched you in the face, the electrons of the atoms in that person's fist are pushed into the space of the electrons of the atoms in, say, your nose. But since the face electrons are already occupying the lower energy orbits, the fist electrons would have to hop into a higher energy orbital to really touch. This would take more energy than the human body can muster. So instead, the atoms repel each other, all in unison, and technically the fist and face never really touch. And that's why it's not only possible that the human body creates electromagnetic fields, it literally is one giant electric field. And now that we've solved that mystery, I can turn my focus to getting my chakra cleansed. You know those pure white Greek and Roman marble statues you can see in museums and historical sites? Well, it turns out those statues weren't always so white. In fact, according to most scholars, they were brightly colored. Like the color of my aura? This is my segment, Cody. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> they were brightly colored, and if you didn't know that, then you're not alone. In fact, the myth of the pure white statue may have been pushed on purpose by artists over the years. And this belief has influenced the very design of sculptures for centuries. Here's what we know. Researchers have found trace amounts of pigmentation in ancient relics, sometimes protected in the crevices of their nostrils and sometimes faintly remaining on more exposed sections. The majority of that color had disappeared over the years, though. So European artists came to assume these classical works had always been pure white. When the Renaissance rolled around, sculptors who wanted to emulate that style naturally created works in that colorless alabaster look because they frankly didn't know any better. Makes sense. The thing is, when interested parties in those days set out to restore the statues themselves, they were known to have actively removed pigments from the statues they found. It's hard to say whether they realized that they were perpetuating a false legend or if they truly believed they were fixing a statue that had somehow ended up painted at one point. But as the centuries rolled on, evidence began to pile up that made it pretty clear that classical statues were meant to be viewed in technicolor. Enter Johann Joachim Winkelmann. In the mid-1700s, Winkelmann published a foundational text in art history that perpetuated the myth that statues were pure white. And this wasn't just an aesthetic preference. It was a matter of ideology. He wrote, quote, the whiter the body, the more beautiful it is, unquote. And as you might guess, he wasn't just talking about the color of stone. 
Since then, scholars have accepted that ancient statues were brightly colored, but the stereotype popularized by Winkelmann survives to this day. Fortunately, you're a curious person, and now you know better. At the very least, a lot better than a racist art historian from the Renaissance era. A new study has found a surprising trick to a winning pep talk. And it could have implications for how you motivate others, whether it's in the locker room at halftime or on a conference call at work. Picture your favorite football or hockey team. They're down a handful of points when they head to the locker room partway through the game, and they really need to step it up if they're going to come back and win. Will they be more motivated if their coach tries to stay positive and encourage them, or if the coach starts throwing chairs and screaming? Researchers at UC Berkeley wanted to know what kind of pep talk worked best, so for a study published in the Journal of Applied Psychology in June, they asked 50 high school and college basketball coaches if they could get recordings of the coaches' halftime locker room talks. The researchers ended up with recordings of 304 speeches and the games during which they took place by 23 teams. And the researchers rated the coaches' emotions during pep talks on a scale from positive emotions like pleased, excited, glad, relaxed, and inspired to negative emotions like disgusted, nervous, angry, frustrated, sluggish, and fearful. The researchers found that teams were more likely to win when coaches went negative than when they were positive. And that was even true when the team was already winning in the first half. Just to make sure the results were real, the researchers invited former high school and college athletes to watch the speeches and then rate how motivated they felt after watching each one, plus what they thought the basketball team should do in response to the coach's words. The second test confirmed the findings of the first. The moderately unpleasant coaches made participants feel most motivated. But to be clear, the goal is not to be as negative as you can. Instead, you might say something like, I don't care if you're up by 10 points. You can play better than this. That's a bit more productive than angrily throwing a chair and screaming, you suck. The researchers suggest that some of this approach could be translated into the business world. If you've got a super important project that needs to be done, it might not hurt to throw a few negative emotions in there. Like, I believe you can do better. Just don't overdo it because too much negative feedback means demoralized employees. Don't go throwing chairs, but maybe sometimes a bit more pushing could help. Cody, I'm really disappointed in the way you did that last segment. I, I think you can do better. <sighs> no, it's okay. You did great. Yay! <laughs> I moralized all of this. <laughs> and now let's recap what we learned today. Today we learned that your body is pretty much one big electromagnetic field. And that my chakra is filthy. <laughs> We also learned that ancient Greek and Roman statues used to be brightly colored, but a widely circulated myth in the 1700s helped whitewash that fact from history. Literally. And that if you want to give an effective pep talk, try going a little negative. Just be careful how you go about it in the business world. Now ad-lib something hilarious or I will have your chakra cleansed. If I had a chakra, it would be so clean. You don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. Stay curious.